Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode 11 of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And today I'll be having the first of many conversations on here about exposure and response prevention therapy for obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. And specifically, my guest and I today will be talking about the rationale for exposure and response prevention therapy as well as a bit about what this therapy entails. And we'll also talk about ways that we can use findings from research to maximize the gains that people make in this treatment. And my guest today is Dr. Lily Brown, who is an assistant professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as the director of the University of Pennsylvania's internationally renowned Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety. Dr. Brown specializes in exposure-based treatments for anxiety disorders and has published extensively on anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and suicide risk and prevention. And as proof of just how small this world can sometimes be, I actually first met Dr. Brown back in 2010 while interviewing for graduate school. And luckily, our paths have crossed many times since then, and I now feel honored to call her a colleague and friend. She's not only wicked smart, accomplished, and hardworking, but also exceptionally humble, generous, and kind. And I'm so grateful that she was willing to take the time out of her busy schedule to talk with me today and hope that you find this conversation to be as interesting and informative as I did. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Lily Brown. I'm here today with Dr. Lily Brown. Lily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to get a chance to talk about this with you. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're here. So I want to get us started um, kind of picking up from where I left off last time. So in the last episode, I talked about what OCD is, and I talked about how attempts to avoid or neutralize the distress that one experiences when having an obsession, that that, you know, it, it does oftentimes work in the moment, right? It provides this temporary relief, but even if sometimes it does work, in the long run, it tends to backfire and maintain and exacerbate symptoms with time. And so I'm hoping you can pick up here and talk about how exposure and response prevention can help to break this frustrating cycle and and also talk a little bit about what exactly the treatment involves. Sure. So, you know, I like to think about the way that emotions are maintained kind of broadly is, and, and then kind of dive into how EXRP works. Cause I think it's really helpful to understand, um, how, you know, 
we often talk about how every emotion has a behavior that's tied to it. And when we think about anxiety, as you know very well, the behavior that stems from anxiety is avoidance. And so just like you were describing in the short run, um, engaging in a behavior to either escape um, or avoid something that's making you anxious is going to lead to that short-term relief or you know, ability to get away from the thing that's making you anxious. But in the long run, what tends to happen is it tends to backfire probably for a lot of reasons. One of the simplest reasons is it can start to make you feel like, boy, maybe I really can't handle being in that situation or doing that thing. So it starts to take a toll on your self-esteem or your sense of control or empowerment. It also starts to convince someone that, you know, maybe I really just can't tolerate feeling anxiety. And so over time, it makes people feel like they have to avoid more and more things. Um, it also makes it so that you never have the opportunity to learn about whether the thing you're scared of is, you know, a true alarm, meaning a legitimate source of threat or a false alarm. And in most cases, a lot of the anxiety that we feel tends to be false alarms. It's like our brain misfiring, thinking that something really scary is happening when in reality, there's not a genuine threat. Um, so then coming back to your question, how does EXRP work? The basic premise of all exposure therapy is trying to reverse that cycle. It's trying to help folks to approach things that freak them out, make them anxious, make them you know, worried, make them fearful, trying to approach those things in a gradual way. But with OCD, there's this added component where a person with OCD, their, their form of avoidance is through ritualizing, um, which as you described is neutralizing, trying to shut down your anxiety with something you might say, do, or think to yourself. And so for exposure and response prevention, the goal is to expose yourself to something that stirs up the anxiety, but intentionally to prevent the rituals so that you have the ability to learn about your tolerance for anxiety, as well as the likelihood that the thing you're scared about is actually going to happen. So let's say we have a person who's struggling with um, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder related to fears of contamination, which is a really common one that we're seeing, you know, especially in COVID days, but even preceding COVID, this mm -hmm. is a fairly common presentation of OCD. Yeah. So in this presentation, the obsession here usually looks something along the lines of, if I touch this object, I'm going to get sick myself, or I'm going to spread illness to someone else. And uh, that could be something like, I'm not going to use a public bathroom because if I touch a public toilet, I'm going to, you know, contract a sexually transmitted infection, something mm -hmm. like that. And then I'll spread that to my family or somehow spread it to people I care about. And so the obsession is I'm going to get this illness. And then the ritual is I'm going to avoid going into public bathrooms altogether or in a situation in which I'm forced to go into public bathrooms out of maybe necessity fine, I'll do it, but I'm going to need to wash my hands for about 30 minutes after just to make sure I got totally clean, or maybe I'll need to shower five times when I get home. Um, and maybe I need to shower until like, it starts to feel just right. So there's no like rhyme or reason to it. There's no public health recommendation that I'm following about how to get clean. It's I'm sort of 
waiting for the anxiety to go away. And that's how I know that I'm feeling better. So if, if we have someone with this presentation, the XRP would look like um, it's usually somewhere between 12 to 17 sessions. And in the first session, we spend time talking about what is OCD, um, talking about what maintains OCD, uh, what makes it worse over time, providing introductions to what we do in the therapy, and then getting a lot of information about um, examples of avoidance for the given person. You know, how does avoidance come up in really subtle ways in your life and how does it come up in really obvious ways? Mm -hmm. Then we start to think about in later sessions, starting in session two, building an exposure hierarchy. So this looks like brainstorming with the person a series of situations that are intentionally anxiety provoking. Um, so for the person I was just describing, this could look like maybe starting with a single stall public bathroom in a very clean department store, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then gradually working our way up to a single stall bathroom, maybe in like a busier restaurant, and then working our way up to a multi-stall bathroom in a relatively cleaner like location to a multi-stall bathroom in like a more run-of-the-mill kind of location. And so gradually the idea here is put yourself in this situation, stay in this situation, let yourself feel the anxiety and talk through what you're going through. But with all of these exposures, you need to practice not doing the ritual. Mm -hmm. um, and the moment you start to do the ritual or start to notice a temptation to do the ritual, we then recommend doing what's called spoiling it, where you instead convince yourself that the scary thing is going to happen. So if you find yourself, you know, mentally reassuring yourself, saying something like, ah, oh, it's really, really unlikely that I'm going to get a sexually transmitted infection in this bathroom. You know, I'm trying to reassure myself so that I'm mm -hmm. less anxious. Then spoiling it would look like, nope, it's probably the case. I'm probably going to get an STI from being in this bathroom and I'm just going to have to learn to live with it and coming back into leaning into the anxiety. So that's a little bit about what the in vivo practice looks like in EXR. Hmm, that's a super helpful overview of what I imagine might seem like a rather counterintuitive approach to many of our listeners. And I'm thinking it might be helpful here to talk a little bit about how we account for the gains that people make in exposure and response prevention therapy. But maybe we could even start first by talking about how we used to account for these changes and why it is that this theory has fallen out of favor in recent years. Yeah. So it used to be the case that we would recommend when folks are doing exposure that they stay in the situation until their anxiety subsides by at least 50%. Mm -hmm. And we used to think that that was important because of some theories um, that suggested that what's called within session habituation or the extent to which your anxiety reduces in a given practice, we thought that that was a really important indicator of how well someone would be doing, which makes a lot of intuitive sense. It makes sense that you would assume that someone does a bathroom exposure, their anxiety starts really high, like a 90 out of 100, it comes down to like a 30. You would assume that that person would be learning a lot more about that experience than if they stayed at a 90 the entire time. Mm -hmm. And so 
within session habituation or within session reduction of anxiety was for a long time thought to be a guiding principle in what we were supposed to be doing in exposure practice. Um, it turns out um, that a lot of research really starting in around 2008 with some animal models and then continuing into the early, you know, uh, uh, 20 teens, um, started to find that actually the amount of reduction in anxiety during an exposure does not in any reliable, any reliable way predict how someone's going to be doing at the end of treatment. Hmm. And as a therapist, that's actually such a comfort because, you know, when you're working with someone on exposures, you and the patient who's struggling with OCD cannot control how anxious they are in that situation. There are some days when your baseline anxiety is going to be higher than other days because, you know, having a stressful morning or not getting your coffee or whatever it was. And so some days it might just be that your anxiety is higher. Some days it might be that your anxiety is not going to come down as much. And if we're using that as the barometer for whether this exposure is successful, that's actually not as helpful because it's not in our control. So instead, what we started to think about was trying to optimize other ways to think about learning in exposure. And um, one of the newer ways that we start to think about this is through some of the inhibitory learning models. Now I'm oversimplifying quite a bit because some of the earlier theories also pointed to some other key indicators of what was important. Things like fear activation, like how you have to get to a certain optimal level of anxiety in order for learning to happen. And there's some mixed evidence about that. It's kind of complicated and we can talk about that later if that would be interesting. And then the the third one is between session habituation, which is um, to what extent does your anxiety go down, not within an exposure, but from this week's exposure to next week's and next week's to the week after, Um, which again, there's some mixed evidence in terms of whether that's meaningful or not. Um, So that's one of the reasons why people have started to rethink ways to optimize learning in, in exposure therapy. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I have also found it so helpful to move away from focusing on habituation, on anxiety coming down in part, because I think I, I like in a way, I, I, I think there's a risk of an exposure almost becoming a ritual, right? If somebody's feeling anxious and then they have the thought, well, okay, I know what I need to do. I just need to go do this thing. And then my anxiety will come down. Well, then that's just adding another ritual in their toolbox. Totally agree with you. In fact, we see that all the time in EXRP, EXRP that something that might start as an exposure could become a ritual. Um, and and it, it's helpful, I think, to take a really flexible approach in this treatment mm-hmm. because OCD is so sneaky. <laughs> um, the obsessions morph and evolve over time. It's so common for folks with OCD to feel like, oh my gosh, don't even tell me about other examples of obsessions because I'm worried I'm going to catch that one. Mm. And there's this sense of like being at the total mercy and whim of the OCD. And so I think for that reason, designing practices that are around trying to achieve a certain feeling or lack of feeling, Mm -hmm. I think is really setting us up for failure in a lot of ways. And so 
I, for one, am grateful that that's not uh, a meaningful predictor of change because I think it takes the pressure off of the patient and the therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to kind of piggyback off of that, I'll just add, like, in a way, if we're saying that we need anxiety to come down, it almost suggests that anxiety is a bad thing. Exactly. And that's not what we're aiming to teach people. Totally agree with you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I wonder if you can, so you, you've done a lot of work on inhibitory learning. You actually came out of the lab where this was really kind of first put out this idea. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what, what it actually is and, and then maybe even contrast a little, a little bit with our more like traditional habituation based models. Yeah. So in the habituation based models, the assumption um, that was, I think, somewhat, you know, implicit as opposed to explicit in the theory, um, in the, the earlier theories, was that if we help a person expose themselves to these anxiety-provoking situations, that their, ex- that their feared association will be erased somehow. So we're taking this very concrete approach. A person learns to be afraid of something like a public bathroom. If we expose them to a public bathroom, they will then lose that fear association. It will be erased through this repetition of exposure. And if they stay in that situation long enough, this is one of the mechanisms through which this erasure will happen. Mm -hmm. Starting again around 2008, there was a lot of research coming out from animal um, experimental studies and then in human studies showing there's not a lot of evidence that fear learning is ever erased. That once you learn to be afraid of something, it might be that association that's formed in your brain might be with you for a lifetime. And in a lot of ways, that could be really adaptive evolutionarily that You know, if you're trying to survive in a scary world and you've learned that something is threatening, it makes sense that you would be primed to remember that. Yeah. And so there are four ways that we've learned that these fear associations really stick around. So one is this concept called spontaneous recovery, which is you might go through exposure and do really, really well, and then find that through the passage of time alone, suddenly your fear has returned. Well, that is an indication that the fear memory is not erased. Mm -hmm. Another one is what we call renewal, which is you learn not to be afraid in a given situation, like the public restroom at the Macy's, but then you go to the public restroom at JCPenney and you might find that your anxiety is high again. So renewal suggests that extinction learning, learning not to be afraid is actually really context dependent. Um, so you need to actually practice exposures in a lot of different contexts because fear learning is not context dependent. Like you can learn to be afraid of something at your home and you'll likely be afraid of it even when you're not at home, Mm -hmm. but learning to not be afraid of something really depends on where you're learning it. And that's kind of a problem, Mm -hmm. uh, for exposure therapy. So this is another way that fear returns, which is another indication that that original association is not erased. Mm-hmm. Um, so the third one is what we call reinstatement, which is um, you learn not to be afraid of something. You then have an, a scary or, or bad thing happen. Um, and this doesn't have to be something that's related to your original fear. It doesn't have to be like you, you get sick from a public restroom. 
It could just be something bad happening in your life. And suddenly your fear of public restrooms might return. Um, so that's again called reinstatement. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some controversy about reinstatement in the literature. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than I just explained it, but in a nutshell, that's basically what that looks like. And the last one is rapid reacquisition, which looks like you learn to be afraid of something. And in a lot of experimental studies, when we're looking at how to learn to be afraid of something, we'll look at pairing stimuli, like a light and a shock over multiple trials. And it might take like five trials to learn to be afraid of the light after it's paired with a shock. But rapid reacquisition suggests that, okay, now I present the light alone and I do that a lot. And so now you know not to be afraid of the light. If I pair the light with the shock again, though, it's likely that the next trial you'll be just as afraid of the light, Mm, which suggests that that original fear learning is there, sort of hiding and ready to be primed and ready to be activated. So this is a long way of just explaining why the fear memory is not erased, which in a lot of ways um, laid the groundwork for thinking about, given that this is the case, what do we need to be doing differently in terms of our therapy? which took us to transitioning toward um, developing a model for thinking about inhibitory learning. And so the idea behind inhibitory learning is instead of trying to erase the fear memory, can we develop a new memory? One that we call an inhibition memory where, you know, originally I learned public bathrooms will make me sick. Now I need to learn a new competing memory, which is, public bathrooms will not make me sick. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in a public restroom, I am going to either activate the fear association or the non-fear association, the inhibitory association. And so inhibitory learning is rooted in the idea of how can we optimize learning about inhibition? Um, so I'll pause there to see if you have any kind of comments on that. Yeah, I actually, so this is all really helpful. I'm actually curious about the piece that you said about this, this new in, inhibitory memory, right? This idea that you said public bath- bathrooms in this example will not make me sick. And I'm wondering, because on a lot of what we do, right, we help people learn that they can tolerate uncertainty, right? So I've always thought of that inhibitory learning as almost like it's, a, it's not threatening, right? Like a non-threat based association, but almost like not all public restrooms will make me sick as being that kind of association. I'm wondering if you can kind of speak more to that because that might be a different way of framing things. Well, I think you're definitely right. I think that a lot of times practically when I'm doing exposure therapy, if the person I'm working with has a takeaway of, I'm still really scared of public bathrooms, but I've learned that I can tolerate it and I'm willing to do it and I'm not gonna let my fear get in the way of functioning, that would be a really successful outcome. So even if that original fear association is still the one that they conjure up, if they don't let it dictate their behavior, Mm -hmm. to me, that's still a major success. Right. Um, But inhibitory learning really does focus on the development of a competing non-threat-based association. So Mm -hmm. coming back to how the theory was originally developed, um, it wasn't about what like perceptions about one's ability to tolerate the stress or 
perceptions about ambiguity, it was truly this association that's a non-threat association. This stimulus Mm -hmm. is safe, or this stimulus is at least not threatening, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So at least it has to be a neutral association in order for that inhibitory memory to indeed uh, compete and reduce activation of the fear of association. Mm. Um, But I think practically you're totally right that we often think about what we're learning in exposure therapy as sometimes it's about learning about the actual threat of a situation. Sometimes it's about learning about your ability to tolerate the situation. Um, And sometimes it's about something different altogether. And so I think um, this is one of the reasons why I think more work needs to be done to connect the experimental literature literature to what we see in clinical practices. There's a lot of nuance when we think about in um, translating what we, what we've learned into lab into working with humans. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, when, it, when, like you're saying, we know that within session habituation isn't a strong predictor of treatment outcome and even between session habituation, it's like an inconsistent predictor. Right. And so it's just interesting to think about that. Like, you know, are, is, are we still like, is inhibitory learning still occurring if that the, you know, the person's still feeling afraid of that situation. Well, then there's still like that threat-based association is still there. But like you said, they're able, they're not having to act on that. They're not having to respond fearfully necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I guess in a situation like that, we could think about, you know, the change that we're seeing there is really kind of downstream in terms of the behavioral consequence of the fear. So the fear is still there, you know, but we've learned in the literature that in most cases, the fear will stay around. It might mm-hmm. not always be the primed association, but it's always there in the background. Yeah. So in some ways, if a person can learn to function with their fear, that I think is a really positive outcome because it's likely that because of the passage of time or change in context or something bad happening at some point, the fear is going to pop back, even if it's gone away for a person. Mm -hmm. And so learning how to live with the emotion and not let it dictate your choices. I often is really the goal for exposure therapy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I wonder then how can we use inhibitory learning to optimize treatment outcomes, whether it's with exposure and response prevention or really just any form of exposure therapy? Yeah. So there are a number of alterations in how we do exposure therapy that were inspired by inhibitory learning theory that sort of stemmed from inhibitory learning theory. The one that I think is the most popular and I think clinically useful is to think about expectation violation. So Mm -hmm. the idea here is you want to make sure that when you're doing an exposure, um, that you're first eliciting, what am I afraid of? And sometimes I'll help folks in think, thinking this through by asking them, you know, worst case scenario, what are you worried will happen if we do this thing? And I encourage people to actually write it down before they do the practice. Um, because nine times out of 10, if we don't make that expectation explicit and the exposure goes well, what will happen is the person will say, well, I kind of knew it wouldn't be so bad anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And if you haven't actually talked about what the person's afraid of, 
um, there's this constant threat of what we call like post hoc hypothesizing, <laughs> which is like, I knew that was going to happen. And it's like, well, then why did we do this in the first place? You told me it'd be a 70 <laughs> on your suds, but now you're saying it's fine. And this is such a common experience when we're planning exposure. So write down the expectation before. And sometimes those expectations are about how other people will respond to me. Sometimes it's about um, stirring up the anxiety and how it will be intolerable and will maybe even impact my behavior in a meaningful way. Common, common predictions from that look like I'm going to lose control and do something dangerous or unsafe. I'm going to lose my mental faculties. I won't be able to function. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's about like the anxiety is going to get stirred up and it will never go away. Um, and the rest of my day will be ruined because of the anxiety. These are really common examples of predictions that people make. Then we do the practice. And after the practice, we do processing, um, which is something that's been really common in exposure therapy for decades, like to talk about what you learned. But here, what we're explicitly asking is, did the thing you thought would happen actually happen? Did the expectancy match the reality? And in most cases, you'll find that there's a discrepancy. You know, I was worried that X would happen. And in fact, it didn't happen. Or instead, Y happened. And it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And so we're trying to highlight the violation in expectancy as much as possible by having the patient talk through differences between what they thought would happen, what would actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one The second most common way that we see inhibitory learning theory applied when we're doing exposure work is in thinking about how rigidly we need to adhere to the hierarchy, um, which is related to expectancy violation. But, you know, it used to be the case that we would say early in treatment, usually session two or session three, we're building a hierarchy. We get ratings of distress and we make a treatment plan based on sort of gradually working our way up the hierarchy. So we might start at like a 30 to a 50, um, then go to a 40 or a 60, and then a 50 to a 70, and then a 60 mm-hmm. to an 80, et cetera, until we like get to the most difficult item on the hierarchy. And we used to think that that was important. So you could sort of slowly get mastery, slowly like build that within and between session habituation. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the way our brains are wired is that Surprise actually really enhances learning. Um, This is why expectation violation is so important. So if I'm really expecting something terrible is going to happen and then it doesn't, the amount of learning that I will get from that is much greater, obviously, than Mm -hmm. if I'm like sort of thinking something's going to happen and then it doesn't. Well, there's not as much opportunity for learning there. So coming back to what we do in treatment, This suggests that actually having some variability in planning your exposures can help enhance expectation violation. It can enhance surprise. Mm -hmm. So if you and your patient or you and your therapist are willing to go from a 40 to a 60 and then back down to a 50 and then up to an 80 and then down to a 70 and then to a 90, like bouncing around a bit to help there be variability in the expectation actually seems to predict better outcomes. So those are two core like practical takeaways that can help with exposure outcomes based on inventory learning theory. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. And I think when you bounce around the hierarchy too, that also more closely approximates like what happens in the real world, right? It's not that somebody goes in in a week, they only encounter forties, right? Like mm-hmm. low anxiety provoking situations, right? Totally. Yeah. That's a great point. It also makes it so that when you get these like gifts from the universe, many, many of us <laughs> therapists call them gifts <laughs> the universe, like oh, we didn't know that that person was going to stop by this weekend, but they did. Um, And do you jump on these opportunities that that arise between sessions from the expectation violation perspective? The idea here is we should be jumping on those gifts from the universe. Even if we haven't necessarily planned it out, if you can push yourself to take those unexpected surprise opportunities, you're going to get even more bang for your buck in terms mm-hmm. of long-term how you're going to be doing. For sure. So like kind of embracing those moments when they come. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm wondering, can you talk about how you see distress tolerance fitting into all this? Yeah. So, you know, my sense, there's a, there's a lot of interest and excitement about distress tolerance in the clinical literature My sense is that it's not something that's discussed as much in the translation from what we see in the lab into clinical work. So this is something that I see discussed a lot in terms of clinical application and what happens with with patients and with people Mm -hmm. during exposure. Um, I might just not be aware of experimental manipulations that have really tried to look at distress tolerance, Um, but it's something that clinically I think is so important. So here we're thinking about the ability to sit with negative emotions, regardless of how intense they are, regardless of whether they go down, that the goal here is to learn about, you know, I can go into the public bathroom, I can stay in there for 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And even if my anxiety doesn't go down, I can walk out of there and have gotten through it. And so then the processing looks like, Um, you know, how did you get yourself to stay in that situation, even though everything in you was screaming, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so I think distress tolerance is a really important thing to highlight, to try and help, you know, bolster during exposure therapy. Um, I think it's just as important in terms of people feeling good about themselves, that they can go into a situation and feel like they left kind of with reduced anxiety and kind of feeling like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. That's great when that happens. But I think it's equally important when someone walks away being like, that was really, really hard. And I stuck it out, Mm -hmm. even though I really wanted to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Um, So then I wonder, we've got so much data to say that exposure and response prevention is highly effective, right? That it really works well when treating OCD. But a lot of this research was conducted like before, you know, before 2008, before inhibitory learning theory even existed. And so I'm wondering, do we know at this stage of the game how inhibitory learning-based approaches to exposure compare to those that rely on habituation uh, and and more traditional models in terms of treatment outcomes? Mm -hmm. So I think there's still more to learn about this. And I think that it's likely that inhibitory learning theory is not going to be like the end-all be-all because we still have challenges clinically with... um, relapse and return of fear, even 
even in labs where we are focusing on promoting inhibitory learning, you know, we, we have outlined that return of fear is to be expected as opposed to, you know, the exception to the rule. Um, so, um, in terms of what we found, there have been studies that have come out that have been, um, trying to make subtle shifts toward capitalizing on inhibitory learning theory, but I'm not aware of any studies that, which doesn't mean that they're not out there that have directly compared, um, you know, traditional full packages of, uh, emotionally processed theory-based, you know, exposures that really emphasize habituation compared to exposures that really highlight expectation violation. I know of one study that came out, this was around, I think 2010 or 2011, um, where we were looking at, we, I wasn't involved in this study at all. They were looking (laughs) at um, variability in exposures compared to going up a hierarchy. This is like Mm -hmm. the one comparison that I think is fairly concrete that I'm aware of. So in the study, folks with contamination related anxiety were randomized to either develop a hierarchy and go straight up the hierarchy or to develop a hierarchy and bounce back and forth between items on the hierarchy. And what they found was that bouncing around, having more variability on the hierarchy outperformed going straight up the hierarchy. Both groups mm-hmm. did well, which makes sense, but the bouncing around seemed to be better in terms of greater retention and learning. Um, so I think there's a lot more work to be done here, uh, but I think there's been a, a wide adoption of principles of, of inhibitory learning theory in part because of what we've seen in terms of the lack of need for reduction in fear, mm-hmm. which I think I think a lot of therapists felt like me, which is, you know, it's a lot of pressure on our patients and a lot of pressure on ourselves to have that be the barometer of whether the person has done well. Um, so I think a lot of people have adopted these different goalposts, um, but more research still needs to be done on the clinical application. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Some good work for the CTSA there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so then I'm wondering how if at all, my, you know, patients use kind of ideas from inhibitory learning to maintain their gains even after treatment ends and, and, you know, maybe if not prevent the return of fear, at least reduce the chances that they're going to start responding fearfully again down the road. Yeah. So I like to start thinking about, you know, the life after therapy very on very, very early on in therapy. So from the moment we start to get rolling in therapy, I think it's a good idea to start thinking about when therapy is going to be over and what life will look like after therapy. And the best, the best relapse prevention technique that I'm aware of is to intentionally anticipate that at some point your anxiety is likely to return. And the more that you continue practicing exposures, the better equipped you're going to be to be able to be resilient in the face of that return. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really common for folks to come back into therapy and to feel like, oh my gosh, I screwed it all up or I failed because I'm feeling like I have this backslide. And so I think it's so important for 
people to be proactive and anticipate that at some point you are going to backslide. It's just human nature. This is just how our brains are wired. And so if you could push yourself to do an exposure once or twice a week, um, in the early days after Mm -hmm. being done with exposure therapy, and then maybe, you know, twice a month, um, and you can kind of taper the frequency of it, but know that staying on top of continuing to push yourself to approach anxiety, I think is the best way to feel resilient in the face of return of fear and to feel like I can handle this, even if my fear comes back. Mm -hmm. So not seeing treatment as like, okay, my symptoms have come down and now I'm cured and I never need to use these tools again, but no, these are tools that I'm going to be pulling out on a regular basis, especially when I start noticing I'm feeling really anxious in these situations and I'm having urges to avoid or ritualize again. Exactly. And also, you know, just as we develop and our lives morph and we have new stages in our life, there are going to be things that are going to make you anxious. Like, you know, when you find a romantic partner and choose to get married, you might notice that you're suddenly going through anxiety. As you're approaching retirement, your anxiety might get really high. It might not be anxiety about the same things you were anxious about in treatment, but the way of dealing with anxiety is exactly the same, whether we're talking Mm -hmm. about OCD related anxiety, social anxiety, fears about the future. There are slight variations in how we plan exposures based on what the fear looks like, but the basic principle is the same. If you practice approaching things that make you anxious, you will end up feeling less anxious overall. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're not avoiding in any way as you do those practices. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a really important point that you said there because yeah, anxiety, I mean, we know when OCD, that OCD oftentimes morphs and changes, right? And I talked about this in the last episode that it's not uncommon for you to kind of tackle one fear and then for like a new one to pop up. But also just with the passage of time, when you enter into a new stage of life, of course, new anxiety is going to come up down the road. And so, yeah, exactly. this is like a new way of relating to anxiety than most people are typically used to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I wonder, um, I wonder what, you know, if any kind of last words would you like to offer people either for, I maybe even for both, if you'd be willing for people, maybe who are struggling with anxiety, some tips, some that you might recommend and then, or anxiety or OCD, I should say. And then also for clinicians, especially clinicians who are treating OCD, any, Mm -hmm. any words of wisdom there? Um, I think something you mentioned earlier today is such an important takeaway that I just want to make sure we highlight it, which is that OCD can be so sneaky and so tricky. And the way that OCD tends to operate in people's brains is, you know, I have this problem of anxiety and I need to figure out the right tool to use to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And I see time and time again, that, that, uh, that treating anxiety like it's this problem to be solved leads to people developing new rituals that suddenly something that looks like a really healthy choice that your therapist might even for, encourage you to do has become a ritual. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, a lot of therapists will talk about doing like deep, slow breathing, which for some people can be a great tool. And in some cases that can become a ritual. And so I think what's helpful for patients and clinicians to remember is that I think there's this need to be curious and to be flexible 
and not take this like one size fits all approach that just because right now it's a healthy thing to do to practice leaning into the anxiety by doing X, Y, Z doesn't mean that that's always going to be the best choice. And a lot, in a lot of ways, the more you can become your own scientist and do experiments with yourself, um, the better equipped you're going to be to deal with the anxiety in the long run. And so sometimes it can get really confusing because Mm -hmm. the person will say like, well, how do I know if something's like a good thing to do or not? And the basic, I, the basic premise I try to follow is if you're doing something for the goal of making yourself anxious, it's probably an exposure. (laughs) And if you're doing something with the goal of making yourself feel better, it's probably a ritual. Mm -hmm. And nine times out of 10, that helps to reduce the confusion about what's the right thing to do in this moment. Um, The last thing I'll mention is that sometimes it can feel really overwhelming for folks because they know intellectually I'm supposed to be approaching my anxiety and not doing these rituals. But sometimes what happens is folks can get obsessive about the process, meaning they spend hours and hours and hours a day trying to just like do all this exposure work, which is really admirable, but I think it tends to backfire because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to carve out exposure practice and to take opportunities when they land in your lap, like these gifts from the universe that they mentioned, but also to give yourself permission to not be practicing exposure all the time, because that again, just becomes another tool, another hammer where you're trying to like drill down this nail and get rid of this anxiety. It's like, I just do exposure all the time. I'll get through this as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And suddenly before you know it, that could backfire on you too. So it's this really complicated, you know, um, condition. And I think there's a need to be compassionate with yourself and also flexible. For sure. So I'm wondering on that note, because I think there are some people who, you know, they're triggered, their obsessions are triggered just about all day long, right? So for those individuals, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you can say what you would suggest, right? So these people who might be carving out time for their exposure, but then what do they do if let's say in class, they're, you know, triggered with a, a thought of harm or something like that, that comes up in class when they weren't planning to be doing exposures and they need to focus on class. For instance, what's your kind of typical recommendation there? Yeah, often it depends on where they're at in treatment. Um, Because I I like to take an approach where I'm not trying to focus on too many things at once because OCD is so um, heterogeneous in terms of like even a given person will have obsessions in four different categories, like thoughts about harming people, thoughts about like inappropriate sexual taboo thoughts, contamination stuff, like this is all part of the same presentation for a given person. Mm -hmm. It can be overwhelming to feel like, oh my gosh, I have to be doing exposures to all these at once. So one simple tip I like to use is to practice leaning into the anxiety quickly and redirecting. Mm -hmm. So you're in class, you have an image of stabbing the classmate in front of you to tell yourself something like, Yep, I'm probably going to stab that person. And now I need to focus on my exam. Yep, I'm probably going to stab that person. And now I need to focus on the lecture. So, or just, I need to focus on the lecture now. You're not trying to suppress that thought. You're not trying to get rid of it. You were gently redirecting back to essentially value-based activity and, and what's meaningful to you in terms of getting your life going in the direction you want it to go. Yeah, that's super helpful. 
Okay. Well, I wonder, Lily, where, if people want to learn more about your work, follow your work, where can they go to learn more about you? Yeah. So um, we have a website through the University of Pennsylvania. We're the Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety. So if you just Google UPenn CTSA, um, you'll find our website. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Anxious. So (laughs) feel free to Uh, check out some of my content there. I don't post a whole lot, but from time to time I do. So feel free to to follow me if that's of interest to you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was so great. So helpful. Wonderful. I'm so glad that you're excited about this topic and your listeners are lucky to have you. So thanks for having me. Oh, thanks Lily. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.